You are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. And I said, well, I, you know, I normally let them go. She said, I know, but you were catching so many, you could certainly keep a few. I mean, I, I was planning to have trout for dinner. And I'm sure you've had this experience. You can catch and fish all day and you go back and it's time to you need a couple for dinner. And all of a sudden they're a lot harder to catch, right? But I went back and I caught three or four more fish. And I, in the meantime, she had taken a bottle of wine and put it in the creek to cool down and went back to the campsite. And she'd had, she'd brought along a little package of uh, pasta and a little package of slivered almonds and a little bit of instant chicken soup and my wife's a professional chef so we ended up having trout amandine at about 8,000 feet in the Sierra drinking a bottle of Pinot, Pinot Blanc from uh, the Trimbach family in Alsace and that was a really nice way to polish off a great day of fishing. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. We've got a conversation with Paul Wagner today out of Napa Valley, California. Paul is an interesting cat, avid wine guru, uh, avid fly fisher. He's an author, podcaster. We'll chat with Paul from his home in Napa in just a moment. I want to let you know about the top 10 cities on the podcast, too, coming up. The Fly Crate sponsors the program, and they are educating fly anglers with captivating advice, stories, and news that leads you to discover all corners of fly fishing. Discover the outdoors, supporting youth, aiding veterans, and inspiring adventure. The Fly Crate has taught thousands of anglers world-class fly fishing techniques since 2015. They provide unique flies, gear, and tackle. The Fly Crate is an American-owned company, and they are committed to helping USA veterans by dedicating 2% of sales to Project Healing Waters. Top 10 cities on the podcast this time around. Thanks, folks, for listening in Ottawa, Ontario, Colorado Springs, Colorado, Aurora, Colorado, Spruce Grove, Alberta, Fort Smith, Arkansas, Atlanta, Georgia, Neath, United Kingdom, Charleston, Virginia, North Vancouver, B.C., and Manchester, New Hampshire. We want to welcome to the program Paul Wagner. Now, Paul is an author podcaster, wine industry guru, avid fly fisher, and I thought, he's just a perfect fit for this show. And we ran into each other at the Vancouver International Wine Show a while back. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a lot of fun. So so you got to tell me how it all started for you. So if you just kind of rewind the clock and say, how did I come to discover fly fishing? Walk us through that. Yeah, my dad was a school teacher, but in the summers when I was little, he worked as a state park ranger. So I grew up um, in the state park, spending spending the summers wandering around playing in the creeks. And eventually, with by the time I was seven or eight years old, he had passed on to me his old collapsible steel, looked like an old ra- uh, car radio antenna, fly rod, <laughs> and a reel that clicked occasionally when it spun, and um, that's what I started fishing with. And once I started catching fish, I went on from there. During high school, I would, I had a friend, and the two of us would go up uh, to the Sierra. His family had a cabin up there in, uh, off of Highway 4 on near Calaveras Big Trees, and we'd go up and we'd fish all weekend and come back and uh, 
yeah, it's been been part of what I do ever since. So I, I realize you're in Napa Valley now, but so you, where would you consider your home waters, kind of the waters that you grew up on? Well, my my favorite kind of fishing is still small streams in the Sierra. So anywhere between Mount Whitney and Mount Lassen um, is is home country for me, and I part of the fun of it is just exploring and finding new places, and um, yeah, finding out what kind of trout are in there. In the in the Sierra, we have, geez, five, six different kinds of trout, so it's always fun to see what's there and what we might uh, hook up with. What's your go-to way of fishing those those small creeks and streams? Like, are you usually dry fly fishing, nymph? How, how does that look for you? Yeah, um, dry flies to begin with, and and I'll, I'll bet that over the last ten years I've probably fished. Um, I bet more than fifty percent of the time with just about a number sixteen L caracatus, <laughs> um, and you know, it works catches fish. Um, it floats pretty nicely, easy to see on the water. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the traditional way. But then if that doesn't work, you know, I'm like everybody else. I'll try it for half an hour, 45 minutes, and then I'll decide, you know, the problem is to fly. <laughs> exactly. And so then, yeah, then I'll try a different fly and then I'll try a different fly and then I'll decide, well, maybe the problem isn't to fly. Maybe the problem, and, you know, it's fly fishing. You start trying different stuff. You know what made me laugh about what you just said is not a lot of people talk about the buoyancy of a fly. Like an elk caracatus is a perfect example of a pattern that is simple, it's effective, and it floats. Like a lot of good patterns don't have that buoyancy. They tend to start sinking after a while, but... It's hard to go wrong with an right. elk or caddis, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I've I've spent I've spent a day fishing on a river with a single caddis fly. By the time I was done, it was more of a nymph than a caddis fly because it had been hammered so many times. But they're they're pretty indestructible and great fishing. Hmm. I want to uh, take a few minutes to get to know you with a few rapid fire questions. You ready for this? Okay, let's see. Y- y- your questions may be rapid fire. I can't guarantee my answers will be, but... <laughs> okay, Paul, so you're on your way to the Sierras, and you're listening to your favorite tunes on the way. What kind of music are you listening to? Well, okay, so that's a complicated question. I was trained as a classical musician, so I love listening to classical music, but my wife and I, if she's in the car, we have taken to listening to these lectures from the great courses on everything from the history of the English language to... Uh, Tocqueville's uh, writings about America, democracy, to all sorts of different stuff. Ancient ancient peoples of the American Southwest. So hmm. these days, it's probably not music. These days, it's probably some kind of educational lecture. What about a wine podcast? Well, I never listen to those because we make one. <laughs> and I know I, I know better than to listen to any clown on, on a podcast talking about wine. But I, I do uh, record a podcast with my friend Rick Cushman over at Capital Public Radio in Sacramento, uh, rickandpaulwine.com. And we spend about half an hour every few weeks making fun of wine snobs. You know, I got to tell you, I really, I listened to a bunch of your shows just uh, before we aired, uh, before you and I started chatting today, and I was really uh-huh. enjoying them. Who who produces those for you? They're so polished. Well, they're very polished because they're done at Capital Public Radio, which is a very, very, um, you know, they're a mm-hmm. professional recording studio. But the funny thing is we pretty much record them straight through. 
Um, not a lot of editing and all the rest. Rick and I have just known each other long enough. We're now in our sixth year of doing these. And we pretty much have it down, and we pretty much can keep things moving along smoothly. So, yeah, not a lot of production involved, just watching what we say. What's your favorite place to talk fly fishing? Is there a coffee shop in Napa, a fly shop, a local pub, watering hole you like to frequent? There is there is an outdoor store here in Napa called Sweeney's, and they're pretty good at this stuff. But my favorite place to talk fly fishing is on an airplane, um, on a you know when I'm traveling somewhere else. Uh, any place where I'm wandering around and run into somebody like you at the Vancouver International Wine Festival and we start talking, and all of a sudden, you know, you can only talk about wine for so long, but for fly fishing, it seems like you can talk longer than that. So, <laughs> Favorite sports team? Are we talking football, hockey? What's your go-to sports, and who do you like to follow in <laughs> Napa? Well, when I was growing up, I was a huge fan of American football, and the 49ers were my team. And I guess they sort of still are, but given the amount of money and everything else involved in professional sports, I've become less um, emotionally involved with professional sports over the years. Hmm. I sure have loved the way the Golden State Warriors have played basketball over the last few years. I do enjoy watching sports, and I do enjoy watching them played in a way that's beautiful, but I'm, I'm less a fan than I used to be. Biggest lesson that you've learned through your fly fishing journey? Um, there are always fish. <laughs> and, Explain that. Explain that. Well, you know, I, I know a number of, I'm, any number of people I've talked about fishing, you go out and say, you know, I don't think there were any fish in that lake, right? And my experience is, yeah, there are, of course, a few places that don't have any fish. But uh, I think people have a tendency to say what works in that place once will work every place every time and if you really want to catch fish you need to start with one thing and if that doesn't work you got to figure out something else there are fish there you just need to figure out what's wrong with you that you're not catching them that's really well put because we do kind of do this one size fits all well last week i was on this body of water and this worked well guess what like you say it's it can't be me (laughs) (laughs) exactly when I'm exactly. not, fill in the blank for me, Paul. When I'm not fly fishing, I'm usually doing what? Well, fly fishing is part of backpacking with me. So my wife and I go backpacking a lot. Uh, and so when I'm not fly fishing, literally that day, I'm usually lugging a pack with a tent and a can of food and everything else around the mountains. But when I'm not actually up in the mountains, the two things I do to keep myself sane here in Napa is I play classical guitar. I was I was trained as a classical musician. And I paint, and I, I water paint scenes of the mountains that I love so much, and it's a way of getting back to those mountains when I don't have time or gas to get up there and enjoy them in person. Good stuff. Most recent book that you have read? <laughs> Well, how about the one I'm reading right now? It's the story of Napoleon's um, uh, invasion of Egypt. Okay. And and gosh, is it interesting and different, and, and I was not expecting to learn as much as I'm learning, and I completely, you know, I didn't really understand what that was all about until reading this book, and now I understand a little bit of world history a little better. What's the best job you have ever had? 
Well, I think running my own company in the wine business was pretty great. I was uh, I was doing marketing and PR. Um, it gave me an opportunity to speak in, to groups about wine. It gave me an opportunity to drink fabulous wine, travel all over the world. But maybe the best job ever is the one I've got right now, which is I'm an advisor to Expedia cruise ship centers, and they send me on wine cruises around the world. And all I have to do is show up and drink wine and talk about it, and I get to see everywhere in the world. That sounds all right. It's a pretty great job. Let's, I'd like to kind of transition into what you're doing now. So I know you're, you're still teaching some sales and marketing courses, are you not? Yeah, I teach classes on the business of wine and wine tourism and the culture of wine. And I, I've been teaching at Napa Valley College for 25 years. And I also teach at a couple of MBA programs, one in Europe and one at the Culinary Institute of America. Uh, so so that's, that's theoretically my primary occupation, although my real occupation is I'm retired. <laughs> that's, that's what it says on your business card, too. I'm retired. Ask someone else. <laughs> I love it. I like the quote that you had out there, too. It kept coming up when I researched it. It said, please don't tell me how your wine was made. Tell me why it was made. And that's, you know exactly. what? Exactly. That, that's somebody that gets it because... Uh, we get lost in the details sometimes, but where's the place for it, right? Where is it? Is it ha- first off? Is it from a place? Does it have a sense of place? And and why? Why is it even here? Well, and and to me, what that does, and and I think you find the same thing about fishing. Um, it ends up focusing on the details, and you completely forget about the joy. Hmm. And if it's not about joy, why are you doing it? Yeah. Amen. And, you know, you sit down and whether it's with a fly fisherman who wants to talk about how many grains are in his, you know, in his weight forward line or something else. But but that's not why you're fishing. You're fishing because I, I the, the way I heard it once explained to me was absolutely wonderful. I was speaking at a wine conference down in Chile and God bless her, the young woman who was my local tourist office guide, she and I started talking about what we like to do when we're not talking about wine, and she said, fishing. And I said, really? And she said, you know, I have to tell you, I was 12 years old, and my dad took me fishing for the first time. And she said, the first time I went fishing, I cast that fly out on the water, and we'd been practicing a little bit and all the rest. And all of a sudden, she said, there was a fish on the end of my line. And the electricity that came through that line to my hand is something I will never forget as long as I live. And every time I go out fishing, that's what I think about. Hmm. And I thought, you know what? That's what we should be talking about. Not whether it's a 14 or a 12 or a 16, but right. that the absolute right. When you, you literally have the electricity of Mother Nature at the other end of that line, that's pretty exciting. That's why I like that. The tug is the drug, because it absolutely is the drug. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Tell me about how that comes in your day-to-day life with wines. Like when you find a wine that talks to you, walk me through that. Because I, I always like to ask people that are passionate about anything. Wine is no different than, than fly fishing, than... It's got a lot of passionate people in and around it. What what brings you to to a certain wine over any other? Well, it's interesting because to me, wine is uh, an enormous pleasure, but it is a more sedate pleasure than fishing. 
Um, there is no tug. There is no instantaneous bang. Now, you can open a great bottle of wine and think, wow, this is really delicious. But ultimately, to my mind, there's a big difference because if you open a really good bottle of wine, the first thing you do is look around at the faces of all the people you're with mm. and see if they're getting the same amount of enjoyment. It's, wine is one of those things that's really better if it's shared. Fishing, it's almost better. The way I love to fish, I would rather fish for an entire day, catch one fish and not see anybody else than fish amid 50 other anglers on the side of a river catching fish every 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, to me, that solitude, that being out in nature is an important part of the fishing experience. And so it's almost a counterbalance to the wine. Wine actually, I think, gets better with more people. Fishing gets better with fewer people. That's really well put because I feel the same way. And I also think that wine at the end of the day is a perfect way oh, to yeah. catch up and to share those stories. And it's, it's, it's a lot better than sitting on a bank alone enjoying it, if that makes sense. That's right. That's right. And, and the thing that I love most about everything I've done with my career is the teaching. And there is that there is that electricity when you're teaching. There is that electricity of when you are engaging a group of students and you see one of the students suddenly light up and raise a hand or say, now, wait a minute. And you think, OK, I got a fish on. Hmm. And that's fun. I'm going to ask you, and, and you are an artist in, in, in your in your daytime too. So maybe you can, you're the perfect person to do this. Paint us a picture. I want you to paint us a picture of your perfect day, Paul. If you're out on your favorite uh, stream or creek or body of water, when does that start in the morning? What are you fishing for? Just kind of walk us through that. Um, probably involves at least a full day hike to get there to begin with. And once we get there and set up camp, uh, there's nobody else around. So that part's nice and, and probably did a little fishing the night before. So I kind of have an idea of where the fish are and what I want to try. And if it's a perfect day fishing, I don't, I'm not up at the crack of dawn. Actually, I am up at the crack of dawn, but I get up with my wife and we have breakfast together in the mountains. And then she says, well, I'm going to go read a book or I'm going to go off and sit on a rock for a while. And I say, well, I think I might do some fishing. And it's not a full day fishing, but it's just what I love is working my way down, not a big river, not a tiny stream, but a medium stream, one that's got a few holes and a few cascades and a few riffles and all the rest, and a bunch of rock hopping, not not such a big uh, stream that you can't rock hop across it from time to time to get to the other side. And just the, to me, the fun is getting yourself in the right position, figuring out where the fish are going to be in the next pool, working your way around to get to where you can cast in that one. In the perfect day, Mark, there would be no trees in the back cast. <laughs> that's so true. That's so, that's so true. I know, you're the first person to bring that up, but no, sh I, ha no sh I haven't had a perfect day yet, by the way. <laughs> no, no shrubbery. I, I'm picturing like a spring creek in Montana where it's in the middle of a field. Exactly. So carry yeah. on. And what, what kind of species are you targeting? Um, rainbows. Mm -hmm. uh, there are goldens, but goldens don't, don't get as big. The browns are usually a little further down. The brookies don't get as big. So to my mind, the, the, the perfect fish to catch up there is a rainbow. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I had, I can remember one day up there and it wasn't quite as isolated as all that. My wife and I and daughter were up, uh, and we were car camping and we found a little campground and there was a pool just below the campground where there must've been goodness, uh, 20, 30 rainbow trout in that pool. And I probably caught all of them at one point or another, <laughs> um, all, you know, 10, 12, inches long. And at the end of the evening, I went back to my wife and she said, where are the fish? And I said, well, I let them all go. <laughs> and she said, what the hell? <laughs> and I said, well, I, you know, I normally let them go. She said, I know, but you were catching so many, you could certainly keep a few. I mean, I, I was planning to have trout for dinner. <laughs> and I'm sure you've had this experience. You can catch and fish all day and you go back and it's time to, you need a couple for dinner. And all of a sudden they're a lot harder to catch, right? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, but I went back and I caught three or four more fish. And I, in the meantime, she had taken a bottle of wine and put it in the creek to cool down and went back to the campsite. And she'd had, she brought along a little package of uh, pasta and a little package of slivered almonds and a little bit of instant chicken soup. And my wife's a professional chef. So we ended up having trout amandine at about 8,000 feet in the Sierra, drinking a bottle of Pinot, Pinot Blanc from uh, the Trimbach family in Alsace. And that was a really nice way to polish off a great day of fishing. You paint a pretty mean picture. <laughs> now I'm hungry. I want to go fishing, and I want to taste that Pinot. Okay. Exactly. Well put. What, what about uh, reds? What about go-to reds? So at the end of that day, uh, say it's a little cooler. Uh, and, and you're putting your feet up in front of the fire at the end of a day on the, on the water. What kind of wine do you like to reach for in, if it's a red? Yeah, and you know, I, first of all, I just need to be really clear. I drink anything and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am not a big fan of just drinking wine on its own. I usually like to have it with some food. So depending on what we eat, I love to drink what at least traditionally or culturally would go with what we're, we're eating. So if we're eating beef bourguignon, I'd love a bottle of burgundy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're eating, you know, bisteca alla Fiorentina, I want a Chianti Classico. Um, so, but I love all kinds of red wines. If we're having asado down in Argentina, I want Malbec. And that, to me, that's part of the fun is that all of this stuff, the, the food, the wine, it all over thousands of years or at least hundreds of years grew up in these same places and they belong together. And that's half the fun of drinking them is, is putting them in that context and enjoying them the way they ought to be enjoyed. We're chatting today with Paul Wagner. Now, Paul is an author, podcaster, wine industry marketing guru, avid fly fisher. Uh, he's got a couple books out, wine sales and marketing, wine sales and distribution, and uh, you paint a mean picture, I'll tell you that. Um, if somebody wants to check out some of your, your, your paintings that you're doing, is there somewhere they can find those online, Paul? You know, I do have a website. My, as I mentioned, my wife and I are huge fans of backpacking. And about 10 years ago, I started putting together a website that I hoped would just encourage more people to backpack in the Sierra Nevada, which is where we love to backpack. So I created a website. It's called BackpackTheSierra.com. Non-commercial, just offers a whole lot of encouragement and information for people who want to backpack. This is something that comes up on the show a lot. I always ask uh, my guests if they have any crazy fish stories or anything kind of weird or wonderful that's happened to you, Paul, in your time 
either in the Sierras or, or elsewhere on the planet. Anything weird happen to you while fishing? Well, um, I guess weird stuff happens to me just about everywhere. I, I, I probably have more weird stuff backpacking than actually fishing. Um, but I, I do have one story that's sort of fun to me. It's, it's, I don't know if it's weird, but it's fun. My, because we love camping, we've encouraged my, the rest of my family to join us. And for a few years, we were going up to Lassen National Park. And Lassen National Park is spectacular. It's not very crowded. Um, and it has a, an absolute trophy fly fishing uh, lake there called Manzanita Lake. But I was with the little kids. I was with my brother and his little kids. I was with a sister and some of her little kids. And I think you probably are like me. You can take people fishing or you can go fishing, but you can't do both. And we were, we were camping, and I just thought, you know, I'll bring this stuff, but I probably won't use it because this is a family vacation, and my job is to go have fun with the family. So I left everything in the car, not even thought about it. We're on the beach. I'm sitting there talking to my brother, and my eldest daughter, who was probably at the time nine or so, is just out in the water to the point where the the water is up to her shoulders or something. And all of a sudden, I watch a trout about the size of my arm pretty much leap right over her head to catch a fly. And I look at my brother and I say, you're going to have to excuse me for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) And what's funny is this lake is full of those absolutely committed fly fishermen. You know, the guys who show up in camo. And have the you know the float tubes and on in the on the back of their pickup instead of rifles and the gun rack they've got six different fly rods across there you know and these guys are so deadly serious and all the rest and I've been watching them all afternoon and nobody's catching anything. Well, I run back to my campground and I get my little fly rod and I slap it together and I stick on. It seems like it might be a uh, uh, calabatus hatch. So I'm, I'm, I just stick on something that kind of looks like that. And I wait out there in flip flops and I'm still wearing my bright turquoise bathing suit. And I just wait out into this lake and hear all these guys all over the lake, you know, dead silent casting carefully and all the rest. And I choke off one cast pretty much into the wind doesn't go near as far as I was hoping it would go. Um, but I can see the fly hit the water, and it, it for some reason I, I didn't put float tent on it or something. I don't know. It did. It started to sink immediately, and all of a sudden, about an 18-inch brown trout comes over and just inhales it. And I hook the fish, and I bring it over to shore. And my brother says, "I got to take a picture," and I let the fish loose. And I turn and look at him, and he says, "Going for more?" And I said, "Nope." I think I'm done. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the mic drop right there. I, I'm taking but I my... think that I think if there had been rifles on some of those pickup trucks, they'd have been used about ten minutes after that. Because uh, yeah, I'm taking my guys... aqu- aqua blue swimsuit and I'm going home. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> that one's going to stick with me, Paul. <laughs> that's too funny. Yeah. Is there anything you think that is fly fishers we should be doing better or maybe could be doing differently well right off the bat i don't know if it's i i don't know if it's quite so true of fly fishermen but fishermen in general are pigs in the wilderness they leave stuff all over the place they stomp on stuff they break branches 
they generally destroy what is beautiful in the wilderness, and that's tragic. And I can't tell you the number of times I've worked like a dog for a day and a half to get up to some tiny little lake at 11,000 feet in the Sierra, and I get there, and there on the shore is a wad of, of monofilament or a couple of lures stuck out in the middle of a lake, you know, shining, and somebody's empty jar of salmon eggs or something else. And gosh, if we would just try as hard as possible to leave no trace and if we would if everybody took out more stuff than they brought in the world would be a better place Uh, that's that's really well said and that does come up quite a bit good stuff i want to transition a little bit into your i know you're you're very busy with your podcasting as well as your your lecturing your teaching Um, tell me about your podcast how it's got started and, and where you guys are at with it well, it was a lot of fun. Um, I was running a company that's job was to promote wines to the wine media around the United States. And one of those wine media was a guy who wrote about wine and talked about wine on Capital Public Radio. His name was Rick Cushman. And um, a, a mutual friend of ours, Karen McNeil, who is quite a famous wine writer and also affiliated for many years with the Culinary Institute of America, she said, you know, you'd really like Rick Cushman. And she said to Rick Cushman, you know, you'd really like Paul Wagner. So sure enough, we sort of, uh, there was a big event that my company was organizing, and we both sort of had our radar out to say, I'm going to pay attention, and if this guy named Rick Cushman walks by, I'm going to grab him. Well, sure enough, about an hour into the event, Rick walked up to me and he said, I think we're supposed to talk to each other. <laughs> we started talking, and 45 minutes later, one of my staff came over and said, Paul, um, we kind of need you to do some other stuff. And I had just, time had disappeared. Rick and I were just having a wonderful time talking to each other. So at the end of that day, before he left, he said to me, you know, we ought to, we ought to just uh, try to do a podcast on the, on the radio. And I said, well, that sounds like fun. And that's actually how it started was we just had so much fun talking to each other that he went to Capital Public Radio and said, I think this could work. And the folks at, at Capital Public Radio have just been enormously helpful. And we, you know, they give us a studio whenever we want it pretty much. So um, that has made it enormously easy. How do we find your podcast? RickandPaulWine.com or even easier is if you go to uh, Capital Public Radio, capradio.org in Sacramento, uh, they have on their homepage a list of recommended podcasts, and we're on it right next to Fresh Air with Terry Gross and all those other really famous mm-hmm. people on public radio. And there we are, Rick and Paul, talking about wine. Did you have Did you have a radio background or a background in other media, or was this just something you took your wine knowledge and, and your passion for talking to people and said, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a whirl." Well, Rick is the guy who has the background in radio, so he's always the one who said, "You know, next time we need to do that this way," and he's always right. Um, but I am a teacher. And I've been teaching for 25 years. So the idea of talking in front of people and explaining things in front of people and just being clear in front of people is something I've been working on for 25 years. And thanks to my students, I'm slowly getting better at it. Yeah, good stuff. What, what's, your big, what's your biggest takeaway since you started this venture with Rick? Like, wh- what, what are you taking away from the podcast world? 
the thing that has um, delighted me more than anything else is we do a segment each each podcast called Bad Wine Writing. And when we started it, we thought it was going to be a little dangerous because, you know, we're supposed to be friends with these people and yet we're holding up. We, we never use names, but we hold up examples of this writing and we just say, you know, this is this is embarrassing to try to to try to talk to people about a product using this kind of language and these kind of words that has become far and above the most popular segment of the show. And every week we get comments from people saying, I just love it when you guys read those bad tasting notes and they, they're so stupid. And now we're starting to see pretty much across the board uh, in terms of uh, people who write about wine, we're seeing that philosophy come through. And I'm not sure that the tasting notes are getting any better, but at least enough people are talking about it that maybe one day they will. Yeah, I find tasting notes are always very interesting to me because I, uh, you know, just because you find something, there's uh, let people's thresholds for different sensitivities are amazing, right? Like, someone will get, right. get mint, but I may not get mint, but it doesn't mean it's not there. You know, it's like some some people are just very perceptive to certain things, and the power of suggestion yeah. is pretty huge, right? If somebody tells you there's strawberries, oh, yeah. you're gonna find strawberries. Oh, yeah, there's a wonderful research project by a professor at the University of Bordeaux, Professor Roger, who does a wonderful thing where he gave a bunch of expert wine tasters. He gave them a white wine and asked them to only smell it, not taste it, just smell it and tell him what they smelled. And they smelled apples and pears and melon and white flowers and all the things you would normally expect in a white wine. And then he gave them a red wine and he asked them to smell that. And they smelled strawberries and plums and cherries and raspberries. And it was the same wine. He had just added red food coloring. <laughs> so not only, you, not only you as an amateur, but the most sophisticated professionals are frequently misled by things that really aren't what their senses are telling them. So, so that's one thing. But then the other thing, you're absolutely right. My wife's a professional chef. She is more sensitive, for example, to uh, vinegar, volatile acidity, acetone than I am. So, uh, you know, we will smell a wine and I will say, hmm, this is kind of nice. She says, no, not for me. It has too much acetone in it. And, and we're all different that way. So I always think it's funny when a wine expert would say, well, this is a better wine than that one. When in fact that wine expert may have a, a either a sensitivity to or a lack of sensitivity to something that the other person doesn't have and would perceive that wine differently. Hundred percent. And if you find a twenty dollar bottle of wine that you love, kudos to you, Drink right? It. Like exactly. It's like <laughs> someone else doesn't have to tell you it's good for you to know it's good. If you enjoy it, then it's good. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So. Has anybody influenced you in your fly fishing along the way? Has anybody kind of that you've learned from? Because I know you as a teacher have probably taught lots of other people, but who did you learn from? Well, first of all, my dad. Mm -hmm. um, but it was funny. My dad wasn't a very good fly fisherman. Um, he liked to do it a little bit. Um, he was too busy doing his job to, to, to spend a lot of time teaching me. He kind of gave me some very basics, but he didn't, for example, spend much time teaching me how to cast. And with that old steel, you know, extendable fly rod, it wasn't much fun to cast anyway. Right. Uh, but he did teach me where the fish were. 
you know, you got you got to put the fly where the fish are. It doesn't matter how beautifully you cast. It, it, what matters is getting the fly to where the fish will take it. Uh, and then when I was in high school, I had a best friend, a guy by the name of Ed Pinkert, and the two of us spent countless, countless weekends uh, fishing everywhere. And he was a fanatic. Um, I can still remember there were times we'd pull up alongside a river and I would get my rod out of the car and start putting it together. And he would have had his rod already put together and he'd already come back. He said, brown trout. He says, look, I got a brown trout. (laughs) (laughs) And I haven't even, I haven't even threaded my line through the, you know, through the, through the rod yet. And he's already pulled the first fish out. Um, but he, he was the one who I think really, uh, he loved to tie his own flies, so I started doing that. Um, those were probably the biggest influences. But then the other thing is I love just reading about fly fishing. There are some some people who write about fly fishing beautifully, from Hemingway to uh, John Garrick to all sorts of people, mm-hmm. and that's fun to do too. Yeah, good stuff. Well, hey, I really want to thank you, Paul, for taking the time to chat with us. I, I mean, we we got to do this again at some point. Let's 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 hook up, find out how your fishing season's going, or if you've opened any. I'd good, love to. If you open any good bottles of wine, I need to know about. I'd uh, I'd love <laughs> you to dial me in on that. Great, and in fact, this summer, if we can at all manage it, I'm going to spend about a month in Yellowstone, and I hope to do a bunch of fishing there. So maybe I'll have some stories to tell. Awesome. Thanks so much, Paul. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Great talking with you, Mark. We've been chatting today with Paul Wagner, author, podcaster, wine industry marketing guru, and all-around avid fly fisher and teacher. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.